Well, glad to be with you tonight. I got blessed <laughs> right before the service. Ken and Karen Greeson went to the state fair and they saw something that made them think of me. And so they picked this up for me. It's a little sign. It says, the higher the hair, the closer to God. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> That's not a sign you buy for men a lot, you know? And I'm aware of that. But uh, anyway, glad to be with you all. Take your Bibles. Join me in Acts chapter 2. We're continuing our study in the Holy Spirit. We call this series Life in the Third Person, as in the third person of the Trinity. And uh, we see a seminal event in human history in Acts chapter 2. We saw what the Lord prophesied about it last week when we looked at his words to the disciples in the book of John. And he said, when he comes, when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, and it's going to be in this chapter that he comes. And this will change everything. You know, in 1986 or 87, somewhere about then, I was in seventh grade. And I remember my birthday was, was coming up. And I told my parents, I said, I, I don't want you to buy me a present. I don't want a present. Just give me money. You know, because money's always the right size. It's always the right color, right? And so, but I had an agenda. I, I said, I want everybody in the family that's planning on, on doing something for my birthday, just, just, just money because I'm saving up. I'm saving up. I want to I buy something. Because my, my uh, seven-year-old self, a seventh-grade self, rather, was looking forward to purchasing a home video game system. I never had a home video game system. I had all these friends that would invite me over to play video games, and, and I wanted a video game system. And so the money came in, and I counted it all up, and I had enough. And so I went to Best Buy with my dad, and we went down there, and we looked, and I saw something I'd never seen before. It was new. It was unheard of. It was called the Nintendo Entertainment System. Oh, and I just, I looked at it. I was like, wow. It had these little nifty controllers. They were different. There were no joysticks. There were just these little thumb pad things. And there was a, I was like, what is that? Is that a, like a laser gun? You shoot the TV? What? And I was just blown away. But I was like, wow. And my dad comes over. He goes, Nintendo? Who ever heard of Nintendo? No, 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 no. Son, you don't want the Nintendo. No, what you want is this over here, the Atari. The Atari, son, that's the name brand. That's the reputable thing. That's what you want. Nobody, no, this Nintendo, that's, that's here today, gone tomorrow, you know. And I go, yeah, yeah, no, okay, uh, yeah, Atari. Yeah, no, all my friends had Atari, son, so I, I, I bought the Atari. And in six months, you couldn't find one Atari game. <laughs> Nintendo had taken over the world. And what made it worse is that my dad, God bless him, he didn't know how to connect that Atari 7800 to our TV at home. We had one of those tube TVs with the knob that you turn. We didn't have a remote control. Actually, we had a remote control. It was me. I was the remote control. My dad would be sitting in his easy chair. He'd be like, Scott, put it on channel five. And so I'd get up and I'd click, click click and we didn't even have a knob the knob broke off I had one of those mechanical pliers <laughs> to turn you know the channel and all that and so I never got to see my Atari on our family TV the only thing we could hook it up to was my mother's portable black and white with a screen that big 
and I'm in the sewing room of our house playing Atari, you know, with my little joystick here, and Nintendo entered the scene, changed everything, and nothing was the same. Well, we're going to see someone enter the scene in Acts chapter 2, and nothing will be the same. Nothing will be the same. And the revolution of Nintendo pales, of course, by comparison. This is going to be the dawn of a new age. It's going to be the dawn of what is called the church age. We're in that age right now. This is the church age that we inhabit. It's going to end someday, this age, and the Lord's going to return. And he's going to establish his uh, kingdom on this earth after he splits the eastern sky. And all the kingdoms of this world, the scriptures say, shall become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever. And it's this radical idea that we see in scripture. And it's, a, it's an idea that's worth dying for. And it's something that has never been known prior. Uh, that the God of creation who has prophesied this event... That, that, that his son, having died on a cross, having risen from the grave, is going to kick off an age of repentance, and it's going to culminate in his glorious appearing. It's going to bring history to this omega point, and it's a notion far beyond any, any political or philosophical position that God becomes a man who becomes sin for you and I, who becomes a sacrifice, who becomes victorious through the cross and victorious over the grave, and he will become a savior, and he will come again and become a king for you and I. And that all begins right here in Acts chapter 2, that whole age where we anticipate the coming of our Lord and of his Christ. And we're going to look now at Acts 2. In, in verse 1, it says this. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived. It's only 9 in the morning on this day. We're going to hear Peter later say it's only the third hour of the day. They think that these guys are drunk. And they go, we're not drunk as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. That means it's 9 in the morning. And it's the Feast of Pentecost. I told you last week, that's in the Hebrew called Shavuot. And I told you that it commemorated the giving of the law, that the very first Shavuot, the first Pentecost, was the occasion of Moses coming down from Sinai with those stone tablets, the Ten Commandments. And I showed you the contrast between that first Pentecost and this Pentecost. Because on the first Pentecost, when the law was given, he comes down to find all these people in idolatry. And the anger of the Lord comes through him, and he commands uh, the death to those who had worshipped the idols and 3,000 lost their lives. And what's going to happen at the end of this day after these events unfold? There's going to be 3,000 born again to new life and baptized. And what a contrast of the two covenants. Death, the ministry of death and the law, but the ministry of life of the spirit that's going to come. But Pentecost does not just commemorate the giving of the law. It's also going to uh, celebrate the harvest According to Jewish tradition, it's a celebration of the harvest. And there are Jewish feasts that really speak to uh, the things of Christ. There are, there are three in succession that we're going to highlight. We're not going to talk about all the feasts. That would be a cool study. But there are three in particular here. Uh, what happens 50 days prior to Pentecost is the Feast of Passover. And on the screen here, Passover, we see that a lamb will die. Passover uh, is in commemoration of the Jews in Egypt as God was about to deliver them. He sends that final horrific plague. The death angel would strike every firstborn uh, male dead. And God had Moses command the people, take a pure lamb, a, a spotless lamb, shed its blood, take that blood, 
put it above the door and on the doorpost and the lintel. And by that sign of the blood of the lamb, I will pass over you. My wrath will pass over you. Well, who was it that would die on a Passover weekend? It would be the lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who takes away the sin of the world, right? And then following the feast of Passover, you've got the feast of first fruits on the screen here. And what that commemorates is uh, the first of the harvest, when there's a first sheaf of grain and the Jewish high priest would take that and he'd raise it up and he'd wave that before God and the idea is with that first sheaf cut down, now the rest of the harvest is sanctified and made acceptable. Well, who is it that was raised from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits? It was Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death... By a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. And now you've got Pentecost. And Pentecost has come and the harvest will begin. And they're celebrating the harvest. And what is going to be born on this particular Pentecost? This is the dawn of the church age. And it will be the church that will bring about the harvest of souls. That's why we're here, folks. We are to see to it that there is a soul harvest, that souls will come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so all of this is commemorated or indicated, pictured by these Jewish feasts. And so this church, uh, this fledgling church, it will be born on this day. But before it is, these disciples are there on Pentecost, and they are obeying some of the last instructions that Jesus has given them. And if you want to remember what those are, in Acts 1, verse 4, it says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. And so, in your notes, the Spirit's coming was promised, yet mysterious. He had told them about it, but they didn't understand it. They didn't know what it was. He hadn't given them all the details. Is this how God works sometimes? Does he call us to step out in faith without giving us a lot of detail? Does he do that in Scripture? Hey, Abram, listen, bud, I want you to leave everything you know. I want you to pick up your roots and everything. In Genesis 12, 1, he says, Go from your country, from your kindred, and your father's house to a land that I will show you. I'm not going to tell you what land it is. I'm not even going to tell you where it is. You just get moving. You leave everything behind. Hey, hey, you, uh, you Israelites who have just escaped Egypt, I know the Pharaoh is bearing down on you right about now, and you got the Red Sea in front of you, but uh, Moses, tell him, to, tell him to march forward. Uh, God, there's an ocean in front of I know that. I know that. You just, you just get your feet moving. You let me worry about that ocean. All right? Hey, disciples, I want you to leave your livelihood. Leave those nets on the shore. Come, follow me. Follow me. Doesn't tell them how they will be provided for. He just calls them to step out. And so here on Pentecost, these disciples are there waiting, obeying, they don't know what's coming, but God's going to invade humanity. And it says in verse 2 that they were all together in one place. They're all gathered together. Who all is gathered? Is this, is this, is this just the 12? No, actually, there's more than that in Acts 1. Uh, you recall there used to be 12. Now there's just 11, right, in terms of the office of uh, apostle. Uh, one of them betrayed Christ. That would be Judas. He went out and lived happily ever after. No, I mean, he hung himself, didn't he? 
So they got to replace him. They got to replace him. In Acts 1.15, it says, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons that was in all about 120. Okay, you wear that, that there were the 12, but there was a greater group that were among them. There were 120 believers here, and they're all gathered in one place. Where are they gathered exactly? What place is this? Well, traditionally, you're going to hear people say that they were gathered in a house. Must be some house. 120 people. I, I led a young adult's Bible study for a long time, and we would, we'd cram as many as 60 or 70 into a house, and it was packed. And today's houses are bigger than houses of this day. So I, I'm not so sure that this is that upper room where they shared that final meal with Christ. But it does say in the next verse that they're in the house, that, that the Spirit would fill the house. Uh, Greek word oikos. You know something? You know what Jews often called the grounds of the temple? They called that the house. They called that the house of God. And so some people theorize that they were somewhere on the temple mount at this time, on this holy day called Shavuot. And they are gathered there, but either way, whether it's a house or the temple, it says in verse 2, and suddenly, and suddenly, very important word, because this indicates something in your notes. It indicates the Spirit's coming was a sovereign act of God. It wasn't just promised, mysterious. It was a sovereign act. This happens all of a sudden, nothing predicates this. There's no cause to this effect. God wills this to happen. There, there is going to come a move of the God that cannot be attributed to any actions, okay? Uh, you, can't, you can't plan a viral video. That's not something that people can orchestrate. It just happens. Well, this happens, and it's a move of God. You know, you don't plan a revival, God causes revival. There's no six-step program of how to bring that about. God does it. So these guys are waiting, and God just shows up. And, and we're going to see some very specific things happen in order. Now, some say it's only the apostles, the 12, that experienced this. I don't think so. I think it was the whole bunch. I think all 120 experienced this. I think they're all going to be recipients of the Holy Spirit. And in very visible form, something, someone, someone makes an entrance. The Spirit's coming in your notes is a miracle. It's a miracle. What is a miracle? A miracle is not ordinary. It's not ordinary. It's something out of the norm. This is something that is allowed by God to assert his authority. There are people, I've got dear brothers and sisters in the church today, they think miracles happen all the time. I don't believe that's the case. I don't think they happened all the time in Scripture either. I think they are mir that's what miracle means. It's something that's out of the ordinary. One day, these kinds of things will happen all the time, and we won't call them miracles. We'll call them life. It'll be the life in the kingdom. Well, right here, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. In your Bible, miracles occur in three places for three specific purposes. Uh, we got this on the screen if you want to jot it down. But under Moses and Joshua, miracles validated the law. Moses was God's uh, lawbringer, you understand. He had to assert authority. And so there would be miracles. There would be a burning bush. There would be the hand of God writing the Ten Commandments, you understand. The only part of your Bible that is written by the hand of God, literally, Ten Commandments on those stone tablets. 
You're going to see Moses uh, perform miracles throughout that wilderness wandering. He's going to strike that rock and water will come forth. There's going to be all kinds of things that will take place. It's all to assert and validate the law. And then under Elijah and Elisha, miracles validated the prophets because as they're wandering, people are going to, they're going to wander from the law. What is God going to do to bring them back? He's going to institute the office of prophet. He's going to instruct the people, listen to my prophets, obey them, look toward uh, the message that they have and, and understand the coming of the Messiah. And so there would be a message of repentance and of obedience and of judgment uh, for disobedience. And they would speak of the ultimate hope of the Messiah. They would prophesy about that. And so miracles would be conducted by the likes of Elijah and Elisha and so on. And then in your notes, uh, under Christ and the 12 miracles validated the Messiah himself and his apostles. And you're going to see Christ perform miracles. And they would be among the greatest of, of Scripture. You're going to see the apostles even do greater things than Christ. And so these miracles are the greatest. So you got law. you got the prophets. You've got Christ. When Jesus is transfigured on that mount in front of Peter and company, there are two Old Testament figures that accompany him. you got Moses. you got Elijah. And so right there in a row, you've got the law, you've got the prophets, and you've got Christ. Law, prophets, and grace, all three together. And here on this day, we're going to see the dawn of a brand new age, and the church will emerge. Is there a sign that's going to validate the church? Is there a sign, a miraculous sign, that's going to demonstrate that we are an institution of God? Yeah, the greatest miracle of all, it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. How did Jesus uh, encourage those disciples? He says, people will know you are my followers in that you have love for one another. That's going to be the sign that we are of God. Because some of us are awfully hard to love. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. It, it takes a miracle to love some of y'all. You understand? It takes a miracle to love me sometimes. It takes the Spirit to really love each other as God intends, and that's a testimony to the world. And it's a sign that we are who God says that we are. And that's why when you look at the church, uh, you see a miraculous thing that God has done, if it's done right. And so this miracle happens. And we're going to see four things, four things in your notes. At the coming of the Spirit, the believers will experience four things, and it will touch the senses and number one in your notes, they're going to hear something. They're going to hear something. They're going to hear a rushing wind. A rushing wind. Verse 2, it goes on, it says, There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. The word for wind is noise. Noise, all right? Uh, what is this? This is the calling of the Spirit in your notes. The Spirit is calling to them. Uh, do we see wind accompanying a, mir a miracle of God in Scripture before? We do. In Exodus 14, it says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. You know what uh, the Hebrew word for wind is? It's ruach. Ruach kind of sounds like the wind, doesn't it? Ruach. Uh, Greek word for wind is noes. Right here in Acts 2, we get, we get from that another word, pneuma. Pneuma. Uh, spirit. Ruach is also spirit. Genesis 1, uh, it, it says the spirit of God, the ruach, hovered 
over the surface of the waters. Same word for wind, for spirit, for breath. And here you've got that, uh, the breath of God sweeping in among them. And they hear it. And he's given spiritual CPR to this lifeless body because they're, they're kind of morbid right now. Their Lord is gone. He's ascended. They're happy he's alive, but he's left. And so they're, they're sort of morose. They're sort of depressed. And so this, this breath of God, this ruach, this pneuma sweeps in there. And their lungs snap to life. And it's a great wind. You ever been caught up in a windstorm? You ever get caught up in a tornado or a hurricane or anything like that? You know, a hurricane, it causes an effect, doesn't it? Uh, we're, we know what, what the damage caused by a hurricane is. Did you know there, there's benefits to a hurricane as well? Did you know that a hurricane also uh, has a, a, a swell of rainfall that, that can really give a boost to wetlands? Did you know that, that it flushes out lagoons, that it removes waste and weeds, and it, it moves sediment from bays into marshes, it revives nutrients? You don't hear about all that. There's destruction that happens. There is uh, an effect of wiping out things. Well, the Spirit is going to have both of those effects. It's going to revive, but it's also going to wipe out things that are in the way. It's going to remove the fear and the doubt of these disciples. And this Spirit is, is heard, and it awakens them to the Lord and to what He wants to do. Now, there's no indication that anybody but these believers hear this wind. Nobody else senses this. The sound of the wind is reserved for those who have ears to hear. And there's another story in Scripture. The first miracle that Jesus performed was at a place called Cana, and he turns the water into wine. You'll recall he comes to this wedding. His mother is there, and she's kind of working behind the scenes, and, and uh, she comes to him. There's a problem. She says, they've, they've run out of wine. And he says this interesting phrase. He says, woman, what does that have to do with me? Now, men, I would urge you never to use that phrase. <laughs> or you're going to be in need of revival, all right? But Christ, it was meant as an as a expression of respect. But uh, they turn to those serpents. She says, do whatever he tells you to do. And so he gives them instructions. And, and they follow his instructions. And they then bring this newly created wine. They bring it to the master of the feast. And it says that master of the feast in John 2, 9, he tasted the water, now become wine. He did not know where it came from. But somebody knew. It says the servants who had drawn the water knew. The, they knew what had transpired. Not everybody had knowledge of it. These believers in Acts 2, they know what nobody else knows. You know what, Christian? You know something not everybody knows. You hold a truth inside that the world does not know. You remember when you were, you were coming up in school and you were studying ancient civilizations and you, know, you studied the Persians and you studied the Greeks and you studied the Romans and then you, know, you, know, you, you studied the incarnation of God in the form of Jesus Christ and you studied his death on the cross and you studied his resurrection. Remember that? No? You remember that? Yeah, you know, you know, and, and then you remember, you, you studied uh, 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 about how, how the Spirit came and we're now in the age of grace. Remember how they taught you all that? No? No, they didn't teach you any of that, did they? How come? Because they don't know what we know. They don't know what we know. Some things are spiritually understood. In fact, if you ever raised your hand in class and you said, can I have permission to share the biblical meta-narrative of history, you'd have been sent to the principal's office. If you're a professor at a secular 
college and you give a scintilla of this content in your classroom, you're going to face suspension because only the saints have this understanding. And so they know something. They perceive something. And it says that it filled the entire house where they were sitting. This wind. And this is the fulfillment of the words of Christ. In John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, he says, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he's old? What does he climb up into his mother's womb again? And Jesus says, no, you don't understand. In John 3, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You don't need another birth. You need a different birth, Nick, all right? And he says, the wind blows where it wishes, the wind, and you hear it's sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so Christ compares the new birth to the sovereign moving of the wind. And that is pictured here beautifully in Acts chapter 2. And then number 2 in your notes, these believers see something. They hear something. They're awakened to something moving. And now they see something. What do they see? Tongues of fire. Verse 3, it says, And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. Fire. Why fire? The scriptures say, God is light and him is no darkness at all. Uh, Moses wanted to see God. God said, No one can look upon me and live. In the Old Testament temple, how did you know God was there? There was, there was a, 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 a glory, the Shekinah glory above the ark in the Holy of Holies, this fiery pillar, this fiery cloud that had guided the Israelites through the wilderness, the presence of God. And any, anyone who would come in and they would go where they were not allowed to go, what would happen to them? The fire would take hold of them, would consume them. And the picture of Israel in the Old Testament is a menorah of seven lamps that you fill with oil and you light them and they are to be a flame. They are to be a, a light that would guide the nation and, and, and the world. And when Christ appears at the transfiguration, his face is a, is a glow. It's bright as the sun. His garments are whiter than white. And when he returns, his glory is going to reside in the temple. Where is the glory of God? In the Old Testament, where was his glory? It was in the temple. Where's the glory going to be when he returns? He's establishing his kingdom. He's going to reign physically from the temple. The glory will be in the temple. Where's his glory now? It's in the temple. What is the temple? You are the temple. And so just as the glory, the Shekinah glory of God resided above the ark in the Holy of Holies in the temple, these believers see tongues as a fire resting upon each one of them. Why is fire the picture? Because fire does two things. Fire consumes and fire casts light. Fire burns things up and fire illuminates the way. And so in your notes, error is incinerated and truth is illuminated, okay? Like a fire, the spirit consumes the, the chaff, the dross, the error, the doubt, the fear, the wrong mindset that we have about who we are, about who the world says we are. It burns all that up 
purifies our hearts. Proverbs 17, 3, the crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. And when we come to faith, God exposes our sin. Can you come to faith and trust Christ and have salvation and be born again if you don't understand and recognize your sin? You must acknowledge you're a sinner in order to be saved. And you can't acknowledge you're a sinner unless the Holy Spirit comes and reveals that to you. And then in John 6, 4, what we see is that fire also lights the way. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You don't come on your own. You don't discover God on your own. Your heart is illuminated. The Spirit draws you. The Spirit turns on the lights for you so that you are awakened to not only your need but the person of Jesus Christ, you see. And so these believers recognize what has happened to them. And uh, in a sense, they understand the glory has come to rest on them. And, and there are others that don't have this. They, they alone have this at first. And so they hear something, they see something, and then number three, they experience something. They experience something. What do they experience? They experience the filling of the Spirit. The filling of the Spirit. Verse four, and they were all, all filled with the Holy Spirit. All were filled. Some of them were filled. No, all of them were filled. This is the same language Paul uses about the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each. To each what? To each Christian? To each believer is what? Is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Are only some people indwelled with the Holy Spirit? All of us. All believers. All who believe. There are no, there's no such thing as a Christian that does not have the Holy Spirit. No such thing. Every born-again believer has the Holy Spirit. So to all the people of God, he's going to come and rest in his fullness. So he's not coming to people in part, and he's not coming uh, in partiality of his essence. He's coming in his fullness to reside in every believer. And so in your notes, this means that God's presence abides. God's presence abides. John 2, verse 18 the Jews come to Christ. They say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What are, they, what are they looking for? Authority? Who do you think you are? What sign do you show us? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews said, uh, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. His body. When he spoke of the temple, he's speaking about his physical body. Now, what else do we call his body? The church is the body of Christ. We are the body. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It is we who have been filled with that presence. And just like a fire, it illuminates and it purifies us. Uh, and so here in Acts 1.8, his words from the previous chapter are fulfilled, and I want you to watch what happens. I told you this was miraculous. And here's what happens. It's, it goes on to say in Acts 2 that they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Utterance. And so number four in your notes, they're not only going to hear something, see something, experience something, they're going to do something. They've got this Spirit, and it's not for nothing. It's not just so they can have a moment, have an encounter, 
have an experience. No, they're going to do something. They're going to speak in other languages in this chapter right here. There's a play on words. It says in the Greek that they began to speak with other glossa. Glossa, all right? This is, this is not gibberish, all right? They're not, they're not running around just talking in, in some language that makes no sense whatsoever. This isn't them saying, okay? This is languages being uttered here, real languages that they don't know on their own, languages that they've never heard. And so there's a play on words here. Uh, the spiritual flame that rests above them, what was that flame called? That was called tongues of fire, right? And so there's a play on words. They're speaking in other tongues, which is what we call languages. And in verse 5 it says, Now there was dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. They're from every nation. All these Jewish people from all over the world. Why are they here? It's Pentecost. It's Shavuot. Uh, the Jews came to Jerusalem. This was a destination. They came from other countries. You know what they speak in other countries? Different languages. And so they show up here. They don't understand one another. Different tongues are spoken by the crowd. And in verse 6 says, At this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And so it's miraculous on two fronts. It's miraculous that these followers of Christ are speaking in languages that they don't know. And it's also miraculous that amid that cacophony of sound, the multitudes, the thousands of people that are in town hear it supernaturally in their own language to the point that they comprehend perfectly. They understand it. And it says in verse 7, they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And still today, the power of God comes and rests upon each of us. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, the power of God rests upon us to give us the ability to do something. Now, that does not mean that you're going to do what they did in Acts 2. But you have the same spirit that is resting on you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And so you are meant to do something. And so we look at this, not to say that the same thing is going to transpire in the life of every believer, but we understand that that same spirit indwells every believer for the purpose of doing something, of doing something. In Acts 1.8, what was the command? We call this one of the great commission passages. He told them before he ascended, he said, but you will receive what? Power when who? The Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem? that it? No. And in Judea and Samaria and where else? And to the end of the earth. All the way to Burlington, North Carolina. All right? And the number one reason that we have the Holy Spirit is not to manifest some impressive supernatural display, okay? It's not that you and I get all the feels, all right? It's not to have a it's not even to have a 25-day extended worship time, although that'd be fun. That'd be amazing. Yeah. 
And if God wants to do that, praise the Lord. I hope he does. But that is not the primary reason the Holy Spirit comes upon us. You understand? Why do we get excited when we hear about an outbreak of worship? Well, we get excited because God may be at work in all of that. Okay, but does that have to happen for us to know that God's at work? You got the Holy Spirit in you. Why? Why? If, if, if not to dance around and sing and jump up and down and, 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 and get all excited. It's to do something. Do what? He says, you will be my witnesses. And this is in your notes to say that God's word is preached. God's word is preached. This is the whole purpose of, of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. This is the ultimate end. The power will come upon you. To what end? That you will be my witnesses. That you will testify of me. That others will come to faith in me. That's the point. What is Peter about to do in this passage? Preach the gospel. He's going to unleash truth. And today, there are a billion books and podcasts and conferences telling us how to reach people. There are churches that put all their eggs in one basket of attractional ministry, and they have events and concerts, and they bring in comedians, and and they've got movies that they show, and they've got productions they put on, and there's camps that they hold, and there's light shows at Christmas time, and all those things, and none of those things are bad. And I've been at churches where we did those sort of things. And this church has probably done those sorts of things. And they're fun and they're good and good things can come of them. But ministry people are constantly discussing how to have an impact on the community. And we talk about being relevant till we're blue in the face. And we talk about how to market, how to tap into cultural uh, perceptions and felt needs, yada, 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 yada. And what are we missing? The understanding that the truth of God's word is always, always relevant. It's always relevant. The gospel is transcendent. And what matters is not so much how attractive we are, not how relatable we are, not how appealing we are. It's how spirit-filled we are. We must be filled with his spirit. Why? Because that's where the power is is and what the spirit did for you when you came by faith now works through you as you open your mouth and you let that power protrude and you bring others to faith and when the truth is preached it's the spirit that reaches out that grabs people it grabs people like that fire burns up error that's what happens you preach truth you know, you might go to somebody, let's just say you go to somebody, you say, are you going to go to heaven when you die? And they say, yeah, yeah, I think so. And you say, why? And they say, well, because I'm a, I'm a good person. You know, I, I keep the Ten Commandments. And you say, uh, that's, that's, that's not enough. That's not how you go to heaven. That's not what the scripture says. You know, uh, the righteous shall live by faith. No one is justified by the law. The righteous live by faith. And you speak that. What what happens ideally when you speak that truth? The fire burns up that misperception. And then you continue and you explain the gospel. And then the Spirit, Lord willing, draws them and the lights turn on. So that fire burns away misunderstanding and it illuminates understanding. 
And they come. And that's why here in Acts 2, you see tongues of fire speaking the deeds of God in other languages is so that we understand the concept of what the Spirit does. He incinerates error and he illuminates and he clarifies the truth of the gospel. And in verse 9, it says, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The mighty works of God. You know what is meant by that phrase, the mighty works of God? It means this is not some... A crafted message that is tailored to each individual person. This is the truth of God's word and not even limited to the gospel. It's the totality of the works of God. Uh, by the works of, remember who these people are. They're Jews. They might be from other countries, but they're Jews. And so when they say they're telling us about the works of God in our own tongue, what are they doing? They're, they're laying the groundwork to explain who Jesus is. They're telling of all the mighty works of God. They're going, I think there's a little biblical exposition happening here in Acts chapter 2. They're talking about how God moved from Genesis to Malachi, and then Peter's going to come in and drop the hammer and bring Jesus in. And he's going to explain how all of that pointed to Christ. Hey, all you Jews out there, you know this God you came to worship on the day of Pentecost in the holy city called Jerusalem, here in the land of Israel where the people of the covenant dwell? You know that God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and who did all those things and and delivered us from the hand of Egypt? That God? You know all those prophets that he said? You know that coming one that they were all talking about? It's this Nazarene. And they... They introduce him by name. And there's a validation of who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. And I see a beautiful thing here. I see that the entire Bible is relevant. Not just these little snippets that we like to focus on. And we say, ah, the rest of that, you know, let's, where's the relevant stuff? No, it's all relevant. That's why I get so mad at God when Andy Stanley says, let's unhitch from the Old Testament, hogwash. The whole counsel of God is worthy. It tells us who Jesus is. It confirms him. It validates him. And these believers preach. And fire consumes the hearts of the people. And it would be real easy to read this and look at the supernatural and focus on the supernatural. Let me give you a word of caution here. Refrain from making a doctrinal point from an historical account. Anything we do as Christians, as a matter of practice, it needs to line up with Christ and the epistles. Jesus, the words of Christ, are our, that's our foundation. The words of Paul, of Peter, all those letter writers in your New Testament, that's your manual. That's your theology. That's your doctrine. Okay? When we read a narrative, we don't use a narrative, a historical narrative, to, to just... Uh, make a list of all the doctrinal things that we believe and practice, okay? That's why you don't look at the actions of David and emulate everything that David ever did, all right? And so in your notes, a word of caution, don't assume the specifics of a narrative are normative. Don't assume the specifics of a narrative are normative. Uh, 
I am not a cessationist. I am not someone who says all miracles have ceased. I am not someone who says tongues have ceased. Not at all. But some of my charismatic friends look at this and they assume that today uh, one can be a Christian, be born again, and then later on receive the Holy Spirit. And somehow they get that from this passage. Let me ask you, are there varsity and JV Christians? No. Are all Christians the recipient of the Holy Spirit? Yes. You can't be born again if you haven't received the Holy Spirit. And when you receive the Holy Spirit, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Uh, Don't look at Acts and try to draw your doctrine about the Holy Spirit all from the narrative. You take the truth that's there and you read it through the lens of the words of Christ and the words of Paul and company. And you understand the teaching biblically about the Spirit of God. Are all believers baptized in the Spirit? To a person, yes. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all, 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 all means all, and that's all all means. All were made to drink of one spirit. Is that clear enough? Is that clear enough? Uh, Romans 8, 9, you who, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit. You're in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. There's no such thing as a Christian that doesn't have the Spirit. You don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. That's what Paul says right here. There's no event in Scripture where someone goes from being a mere Christian to being a Christian that receives the Holy Spirit. These were not called Christians at the beginning of Acts 2. They were the followers of Christ. They were not the church yet. The church was born Christianity in the sense of the people of the church that was born at the advent of the Holy Spirit in an indwelling sense not like the Old Testament when he would come upon people in in temporary ways for specific purposes this is a permanent indwelling in Acts chapter 2 it was in the late 1800s a man named John Wesley John Wesley God bless him he's a fine man he taught what I would consider to be an errant view, okay? I have a lot of respect for John Wesley, but he believed that one could be saved and then later on experience this entire sanctification where you never sinned. He did. Uh, By the way, does anybody here never sin? Anybody here devoid of sin at all times? Anybody? If you raise your hand, you just sinned. Because you just lied. And Wesley's idea was later developed into the holiness movement uh, where they believed in an event after you became a Christian where this entire holiness was supposedly achieved through this what was called the second baptism. I had a a brother ask me one time if I'd experienced the second baptism. I said, I haven't gotten over the first one yet. (laughs) All right? There is no second baptism, okay? Um, that, that has become what's been termed Pentecostalism, which is a great name for an errant view. Uh, but it's called this because it was supposedly marked by this supernatural event of healing and speaking in tongues. Uh, and, and so the, 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 those believers in the 20th century that adopted that, they thought that the healing and speaking in tongues was a sign of the second baptism, and then as the years went on, they added to the list of healing and speaking in tongues, you know, driving a Lexus and, and uh, 
you know, having 7% body fat, and I'm way off on that. So it kind of got weird. But everybody in Acts 2 is a recipient of the Holy Spirit. And I'll, I'll want you to notice that, that as Peter begins to preach, the Lord has prepared those people because the, their ears have been opened. And he unleashes the truth. And he quotes from the Old Testament. And he leads them to Christ. And if you follow that sermon to the end of that chapter, you see what happens. That 3,000, about 3,000, come to saving faith, are born again, and are baptized. And if they were on those southern steps, and I've stood on those southern steps of the Temple Mount, you can look out, and you look down there, and Frank, what's down there at the bottom of those steps? Well, the cemetery, what else you got? You got some mikvahs down there, my friend. You got some ceremonial baths because you couldn't enter the temple grounds unless you'd been ceremonially cleansed. And it's a perfect spot for a baptism. And 3,000 would come to faith. They would be baptized, born again to new life. And as we sum all this up, here's what we wrap up with in your notes, is that the Holy Spirit, what we take away from Acts 2 is that the Holy Spirit is a mighty wind that awakens us. Have you been awakened by, by, the, by the presence of God? Did he make himself known to you? Were you? Was your attention drawn to him? And then the Holy Spirit is a flame that burns away error and lights up truth. Uh, did the Holy Spirit make you acknowledge your sin? Did he bring you to an understanding of who Jesus is? Yes. The Holy Spirit in your notes is a divine presence that inhabits us. Does the Holy Spirit live in you? When you invited Christ to be Lord of your life, did he come and take up residence in your heart? If you're born again, he did. And then finally, the Holy Spirit is a strength that empowers us to witness. And folks, I just wanna, I wanna submit to you that if you're truly born again, you're gonna share the hope that is in you. You're gonna share the hope that is in you. You say, well, I'm not Peter. Folks, Peter wasn't Peter until he had the Holy Spirit. We're nothing on our own. That's the whole point of the indwelling of the Spirit of God is that you open your mouth and the Spirit speaks and others come and they experience everything that you did to become brand new. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I pray your blessing upon everyone in this room. Lord, may the believers here, may they be filled with your spirit. We know that you indwell them. May you fill them, God. May you, may you have total control over every fiber of their being. May they be bold. May they be empowered by you, by your spirit, God, to proclaim the truth, the hope that is in them, that the world might know, that the world might be changed. And we pray this blessing upon everyone here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.